Is it okay to be wealthy? If I were a rich man, I have a Some people say riches are a curse. May the Lord smite me with it. And may I never recover. But what does the Bible say about financial wealth? Welcome to Evidence and Answers with author, speaker, and Christian apologist, Dr. Pat Zucharin. Today, Dr. Zucharin welcomes his special guest, Kirby Anderson of Probe Ministries, for a look at consumerism and materialism. This is a very important two-part series on a biblically balanced look at finances and how individuals, families, and entire countries can suffer under relentless consumerism and materialism. And it's crucial resources like these that we offer at evidenceandanswers.org and past programs available for download on everything from atheism to Zen Buddhism, all at evidenceandanswers.org. Now here's Pat with part two of consumerism and materialism. Well, Kirby, you know, this launches into a big question. How is materialism and consumerism affecting our nation? And what are the warnings to other nations as they become industrialized and become more wealthy as well? Well, there's a great story that Warren Buffett tells, and I use this in the end of my book, and it's the story of Squanderville and Thriftville. Squanderville is a country that finds itself actually wanting to squander its resources. And so over time, Thriftville not only works hard, but it works extra hours to produce other services and products. And so Squanderville says, well, we don't have to work so hard. I don't want to work a 40-hour weeks. I I can just buy those other goods and services from Thriftville. So in order to do so, then they sell squander bonds to Thriftville. And over time, what happens is, is more and more of the squander bonds are over in Thriftville and not in Squanderville. Well, at this point, Thriftville begins to look at this and say, you know, I'm not so sure these bonds are worth very much, so I want to cash those in for squander bucks. And so as they get those squander bucks, then they use that to buy land and all of the companies at Squanderville. And so eventually what happens is Thriftville owns all of Squanderville. Squanderville, and Squanderville now realizes we've got a problem because we need to go back to work. And not only do we need to work to support ourselves, we have to work extra hours to pay off the interest on the debt that we owe to Thriftville. Well, it doesn't take very long to figure out what Warren Buffett was trying to say. Uh, he was, in a sense, making a comparison between America and other countries. I'll use China as an example. And that is, over time, the United States has gone from being the largest creditor nation in the world to the largest debtor nation in the world. And that's exactly what we've done. Whether we look at it as a nation or whether we look at it as individuals, what we've done is managed to run up our debt. And so today we have a national debt that is in the trillions of dollars, not just one trillion, but essentially about $10 trillion of debt. You might say, well, that's the federal government. They've been irresponsible. Well, before we point fingers at the federal government, we also need to point fingers back at us. The average credit card debt in America, $9,000. Now that, interesting enough, Pat, is one of those statistics that's true but misleading because it turns out that a good proportion of individuals actually pay off their credit card every month. So it does mean that a smaller group of individuals have run up very significant debts indeed. But if you average it out, it ends up being about $9,000 of credit card debt for every person that owns a credit card in America. And you can begin to see that whether we look at the federal government, whether we look at the state and local government, or whether we look at it as individuals, this materialistic and especially this consumerist mentality 
has put us in a situation where most of us are in debt. And that's one of the reasons I wrote the book. It's time to come back to biblical principles, biblical principles about giving, biblical principles about debt and credit, biblical principles about spending and investment and insurance and taking care of your family. And I think that's one thing that we need not only as individuals, but we need to begin to apply as a nation. Yeah, Kirby, you bring up a good point. You know, Proverbs 22, 7 says, the rich rule over the poor and the borrower is servant to the lender. So if you've got a nation that has a high level of debt, it puts that nation uh, in a very dangerous situation, doesn't it? Well, it certainly does. And just think for a minute, uh, some of our listeners right now say, you know, you're talking about me, I'm in debt. And I feel like a slave because it says, you know, you all of a sudden are a slave to the lender. And you may not be a physical slave in chains, but uh, maybe you say, well, I'd like to go on a nice vacation. And your wife says, I'm sorry, guess what? We don't have enough money. We haven't paid off our credit card debt yet. Oh, I'd like to buy a new car. Oh, I can't do that because your husband says, you know, we don't have the money because we owe this money to the bank or to the credit card company or whatever it might be. So the point is you can see how it puts individuals in slavery. Well, ultimately, it puts even a government in slavery as well. The government of the United States right now is highly dependent upon other countries of the world. And these are countries like China and Japan and Saudi Arabia and many others to buy up our treasury bills. In other words, to actually lend us money. Because after all, a government can only get money in one of three ways. It either can tax it or it can borrow it or else it can print it. And if it prints it, of course, then you have runaway inflation. So what you have right now is a situation in which we as a nation, but as individuals, have put ourselves under bondage or slavery. Also, the uh, person you borrow from may change the terms, may raise the interest rates, or may uh, ask you to do things mm -hmm. you know, for them. And so it puts a nation in a very precarious position. It affects governments. It affects the kinds of political decisions that we make, the way we treat other countries. Even in the whole area of military and other issues, there's a tremendous amount of influence a country can have over another country that's in debt to it. Certainly. And again, in my book, I spend the first many chapters talking about it in terms of what you might call microeconomics, you know, how it affects you as an individual, giving and spending and debt and those kinds of things. Last two chapters on the impact that that has as a nation because as many of your listeners know, I tend to speak a lot about political and economic issues. And I see the two connected together. The mistakes we've made as individuals are still some of the mistakes we've made as a government. And as a result, we find ourselves in this situation. And for people, by the way, that are thinking I'm being partisan, there's enough blame to go around both, both parties. Point is, before we start pointing too many fingers, we need to start with our own house and ask ourselves, are we applying biblical principles to finance? Well, how should we as Christians respond to materialism and consumerism? Well, I think there are a couple of obvious principles. Principle number one is the idea of priorities. We really need to begin to reevaluate some of our priorities in our lives. And that gets us back to evaluating what is going on in our lives, what we're spending our money on, how we're spending our time. It's interesting that time is one of those resources that, again, we tend to squander because we are spending so much time trying to make enough money to pay off our debts and to pay for our lifestyle that today, according to the Department of Labor Statistics, a full-time American worker is putting in 160 hours more than any other individual. So we work more hours each year than any other industrial country, including Japan. And it used to be Japan was number one. We have passed them. And it isn't because we necessarily a nation of workaholics, although that is certainly the case in many ways. It's also the fact that people are forced to do so because of their consumer lifestyle. We're facing right now, as I talk about in the book, by overchoice. We have just this blurring array of choices that we need to make 
take, and we have to make more choices in less time. I mean, we still have 24 hours, but the point I'm making is when you're working this many hours, the discretionary time that you have, the time that you can make wise decisions is less and less. And if I have to make more and more decisions in less and less time, I'm going to make bad decisions. So it really comes back to reevaluating our priorities, maybe simplifying our lifestyle, and not being held captive to some of the materialism and consumerism of our culture. You know, and Kirby, that's counter culture. It is. You know, it goes against the thinking of the culture. And so it's really what you're saying. we got to go against the thinking of the culture, as you mentioned. Well, and I think that comes back to the stewardship aspect as well. When you realize what the incredible needs are overseas, it's not just in terms of simplifying your lifestyle so you can raise your kids. It's also so that it would free up more to give. One of the things that you probably notice in my book is we find that the more money you make, the less likely you are to tithe, which is counterintuitive. You would think that a person that is making twice as much as another individual would have more discretionary income. But again, it shows that in most cases, the higher you rise in the income strata, the less likely you are to tithe. And I think that just illustrates something, again, about attitudes, consumerism, and materialism. Uh, let me throw you a curveball here. Some people may say, well, look at, look at the country of Japan. You know, aren't they successful? They're a secular country, you know, driven by materialism and consumerism. My uncles out there, you know, they work seven days a week. You know, they come home at 9 p.m. Aren't they a successful country? They have been successful. They've had their difficulties. Japan has really tried to get out of some economic difficulties they've had by stimulus packages. And we could have learned some lessons, by the way, about what Japan was going through in the 1980s by not trying to apply some of the same mistakes in the 21st century. But again, when you look at some of the countries that maybe aren't as you know religious, become fairly secular countries. Let me pick two examples on different continents, Sweden and Japan. They have a couple of things going for them. First of all, there is a tremendous amount of social cohesion there. When you're Japanese, you're part of a Japanese culture. When you're Swedish, you're part of a Swedish culture. So first of all, the cultural mores that are there that made those countries successful still exist. And so for a while, these are countries that have done fairly well in terms of what they can provide for their citizens. But if you look down the road, they're facing some of the same problems, maybe even greater problems than us because of some of the decisions they've made about concentrating economic power and all the rest. But for a while, they're like a cut flower generation. They're, they're cut off from any kind of religious perspective but they're still growing. But, you know, look down the road, and I don't give them a very positive trajectory in the future for a variety of different reasons, demographics being one of those, you know, because the birth rate in Japan is declining dramatically. So there are all sorts of things going on there. But, yes, they've been economically successful because they haven't fallen into one of the mistakes we fell into, and that is by spending more than they take in. We turned our debt culture into a culture that not only hurt us individually, but is hurting us nationally. They're going to go down the same road, but so far they've been fairly successful simply because they've been able to draw some of those principles from their culture. By contrast, the United States has always been a melting pot culture, and so you don't have hundreds and thousands of years of tradition and culture. You had to really depend upon some of these basic principles, and when we turned away from the Protestant work ethic, we turned away from biblical principles, we actually encountered problems much quicker than some of those other countries will. But my prediction is, just wait 20 years and some of those same problems will surface there, and maybe even more so. Traveling throughout Asia, especially uh, in Japan, I see exactly what you're saying. And a lot of people don't know, but the suicide rates in both countries Mm -hmm. is very high along with uh, abortion and Mm -hmm. the decline of the family. I think you're right, Kirby. The next generation, I think we're going to see a lot of what you're saying coming to pass. Yeah, it's already starting to surface, and uh, some of those social statistics illustrate that only so well. And, you know, another thing, Kirby, in countries that, uh, you know, are secular and materialistic nations, well-developed nations like Japan and Sweden, 
those are some of the hardest places to present the gospel. That was the other part, to, yes. To, to bring people to a knowledge of God. I would say so. You know, I picked uh, Sweden because it is one of the least religious industrialized countries, of course, Japan, and I was trying to pick different continents just to illustrate that this isn't just a, you know, a situation in the Pacific Rim. You can find it other places. But once you've turned away from it, and once materialism and social stability are very important issues, then oftentimes the gospel doesn't make an inroad because, after all, if I were to accept Jesus Christ, that would affect my lifestyle, and I'm really kind of wedded to my lifestyle. If family tradition is important, and now the traditions are no longer towards religion, but towards the secular world, it would be a front to my family if I were to become a Christian. And so as a result, those are two areas where, to use a biblical phrase, the ground is fairly hard. You know, the seed is falling there, and some is growing, but a fair amount of those seeds are simply not germinating. And as a result, it's very difficult to uh, have a very successful evangelistic outreach in some of those kinds of countries. Yeah, you know, one of the things I see is that in a country like Japan, men are working seven days a week. Yes. So you tell them to come to a Bible study, well, when are they going to come? Yeah. The kids go to school six days a week. Monday through Friday is regular school, but on top of that, they got tutoring and training and sports and uh, extracurricular activities. On Saturday, there's more college test prep and languages and all everything to try to get into the best colleges that there is so that they can have a successful jobs, so they can have big, you know, all those things. So you tell the high school kids, well, come to church on Sunday. I'm like, what? You know, that's my only free day. Right. You know, and so it's very difficult to spread the gospel in situations where that is the lifestyle. And, you know, I see that creeping in here to the United States. Yeah, so well, I think we see the same sort of things. And there's where Japan and Sweden are very different, because in Sweden you have more of a socialist kind of, uh, of function where it really crowds out the church because, gosh, almost all the social services I need are really being provided by the government at a tremendous cost, but nevertheless by government. And so people that might have gone to a church to, you know, because of homeless issues or pregnancy or whatever it might be, don't go there. In Japan, it's just the opposite. It's a classic example of individualism and individual initiative and success is defined by your educational abilities and by your job and by your income. But again, it, it, either way, whether you look at what happens in Sweden, what happens in Japan, in both cases, Christianity is crowded out as a result. And so that's why it's been very difficult for us to have the kind of evangelistic outreaches and mission work in those countries that you find uh, taking place, say, in Africa and Asia right now. Also, having spent uh, almost a decade in pastoral ministry, youth and working with adults, you know, you got youth six days a week in school. Well, they come to church on Sunday. They don't want to think. Right. They don't want to participate. <laughs> they want to play, yeah. actually. You know, and so you challenge them. You wonder why a lot of them don't want to rise up to the challenge. Now, several do who make that real serious commitment to Christ. But uh, you see a lot that, and a lot of youth ministries, you know, cave into that. Uh, adults, you know, working six days a week and, and they come, they don't want to participate. They just kind of want to sit there and enjoy the entertainment and just uh, relax. And so I see it affecting the ministries and the witness of God's church as well. Sure. Well, again, that gets back to the thing we've talked about. That is the impact of affluence, or as the one book says, affluenza and materialism and consumerism, that once those things become, in a sense, your idols, success, both material success and academic success, a workaholism begins to be part of your culture, it really crowds out the spiritual things, and it brings us back to what Jesus said. You can serve either God or mammon, but you really can't serve both. Right. You know, and often and I've had to challenge these families to think counter to the culture. You know, why does your child have to go to an Ivy League school? 
You know, isn't the University of Texas or UCLA just as great? I mean, they'll be able to get a job with degrees from those schools. Why does it have to be the Harvards and the Stanfords and the MITs? Now, if you've got a gifted child and he can have a good, balanced life and get into those schools, well, great. But uh, why does every child have to go there? Why does everyone have to live in a $800,000 home? Why do you have to work on Saturday? You own your business or you are a doctor, you're self-employed, you can set your hours. Why do you have to work all day on Saturday? Why not take Saturday off and, and be with your family? Okay, take the pay cut, but that investment would be worth it, isn't it? And a lot of people I'm seeing more and more and more having trouble taking on those kinds of challenges. They've got to keep up with the image that's been given to them. Well, and I think ultimately it brings me back to one of the things I talk about in the book, and that is the book by Richard Swenson called Margin, because if you play this out, remember the first time you got an email address and you actually were encouraging people to write to you. Now most people are just completely overwhelmed by their email. When you begin to say, well, I really want this particular electronic gadget, and then you find out there's another electronic gadget, pretty much you find yourself very quickly on this treadmill, which doesn't give you any real significance or meaning because as we pointed out a minute ago materialism does not really meet your needs there's never a point at which you feel content you're always striving for more and more and so when it uh, is first of all you driving yourself to try to earn enough to support your family but then driving your kids because they have to be in that particular school and then driving yourself further because you have to have that particular car you have to live in this particular zip code or whatever it is you can see that ultimately you end up with the kind of circumstances that Jesus was warning us about that you could get yourself ultimately on a materialistic treadmill that causes you nothing but heartache and pain does not really meet the social and spiritual needs of your life destroys you and your family and that's the, unfortunately the consequence of materialism and consumerism in our world yeah and Kirby goes over this in the book that you're gonna to want to get making the most of your money in tough times a book hot off the press Kirby there's a dangerous gospel being fed to the church called the health and wealth gospel. There's some of that in the word of faith movement. What is this gospel message and why is it a dangerous one? Well, it's basically the concept that God wants you rich. And I think it comes from a misunderstanding of the Old Testament because there was this idea that, well, here, when God blessed the nation of Israel, that they did well materially. And when the nation of Israel was disobedient, God judged them. But I think you have to also come back to the principle I said just a minute ago. It also warns you against the dangers of wealth and especially if wealth is obtained in the wrong way. But it came to be known kind of as the health and wealth gospel, the prosperity gospel, or even some have called it the name and claim it gospel. And that is God wants you wealthy. And for listeners that say, well, I don't really believe in that. Last time I saw a survey, it showed at least one in five self-identified American Christians believe in this. And that number is probably low now. And a lot of it comes from, again, trying to justify this mindset from the scriptures. Galatians 3.13 talks about the fact that Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. And this idea is, well, God and Jesus ultimately redeemed us from the curse of the law, and so one of those curses is poverty. Well, that's not the context of Galatians at all, but nevertheless, they'll try to use that verse. Or maybe you have a Third John chapter 2, verse 2, it talks about the fact that uh, this individual may prosper and be in good health. Well, it's nothing more than just sort of a throwaway phrase, just like you'd say, you know, be filled and warmed or have a good day or whatever. And these are not promises or guarantees, but actually, if you 
you look at that Greek word for prosper, it means that it might go well. So there are all sorts of people that have tried to take some verses out of context to say, God wants you healthy and wealthy. And certainly I think it is important for us to try to pursue a healthy lifestyle. Nothing wrong with having wealth. But this health and wealth gospel that says God wants you rich, first of all, is not biblical. And second of all, does a horrible disservice to all of the listeners out there who are not wealthy. It implies that all of these poor Christians in Africa and Asia are somehow out of the will of God. And sometimes you have that kind of teaching coming down, and I don't think we can endorse that. And it, more importantly, just has, again, an emphasis on the wrong priorities. As we've already talked about today, wealth is something that God can bless us with. We need to keep it in a proper priority. But there is certainly no promise in the scriptures that uh, we will actually have a prosperity gospel. If anything, there seems to be lots of evidence in the scripture that it's an adversity gospel. We see, for example, that the apostle Paul received 40 lashes. He was beaten with rods. He was stoned three times. Jesus told you in another passage that in this world you will find trouble or tribulation. So if anything, the Bible, especially the New Testament, doesn't promise a prosperity gospel. If anything, it promises just the opposite, an adversity gospel. You know, and Kirby, it is a dangerous message. What happens when a loved one gets cancer yeah. you know, or gets sick mm-hmm. or our business goes bankrupt? You know, is it we're not walking the will of God? Is it God is against us? You know, and it shatters the faith of a lot of people if they buy into this gospel. Certainly, you've written quite a bit on abusive churches, and I think that's one of the places where churches become abusive. You know, if somebody becomes sick, well, you didn't have enough faith. You didn't believe in God enough. You lost your business because you weren't following biblical principles. Quite frankly, there is a lot of evidence to suggest that believers who follow biblical principles might have a more difficult time in the workforce because they're competing with people that are lying and cheating and are dishonest. So to take this idea that uh, you lost your business because you were not obeying God may actually be just the flip of what was taking place. And again, we recognize that the rain falls on the righteous and the unrighteous alike, that people will get cancer, people will get sick, jobs will be lost, children will disobey, children will be disobedient or rebellious. All of those things will happen. We have no guarantee that even if we do everything right, that our life will go without trouble or trial or tribulation. Likewise, we can't always assume that just because somebody is successful or wealthy, that that's due to the fact that God is blessing them. In the Old Testament, we see examples where David is railing almost against the Lord because the unrighteous are prospering, Mm -hmm. and yet he is faithful. And so we recognize that there are times in which, at least from a perspective of the world, that it seems like sometimes the ungodly are blessed. But of course, we have to see the full picture and the ultimate judgment that will come. So I think there's some tremendous dangers in the health and wealth gospel, the prosperity gospel. And as I point out before, if anything, the scriptures don't promise prosperity. If anything, the scriptures promise adversity. That's one of the cost of leaving the secular world and following Christ and taking up your cross daily. You know, Kirby, these churches are some of the biggest here in the United States. Unfortunately, of course, it's unbiblical. And that's the sad reality that we live in a time where people are willing to have their ears tickled, not only in the United States, but overseas. And one example of that is a health and wealth gospel. Does God want you to follow him, and does he want to bless you? I think that he does. But we also live in a world system, which is corrupt because it's a fallen world. We also are surrounded by fallen individuals. We're all fallen. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And so even if God's ultimate goal would be to prosper you in what he does, and I believe that God does do that, we have to also understand that there are other circumstances that have created the poverty in those countries, and coming in and saying, well, if you just believe enough, you will no longer be impoverished, but actually will be a rich Christian, is doing a tremendous disservice to the kinds of things that need to take place in those countries. 
whether it's removing a dictator, whether it's uh, uh, providing for greater freedom, whether it's uh, providing opportunity for upward mobility, whether it's a capital investment. There are all sorts of reasons why poverty exists in those countries. And uh, simply thinking that I can wave a wand and say, well, if you just believe enough, you'll be rich, is a terrible disservice and just a major corruption of the gospel. The book is Making the Most of Your Money in Tough Times by Kirby Anderson. You can get a copy of that here at Evidence and Answers or on Amazon.com. Harvest House is the publisher here. Kirby, as we close, why don't you give a final exhortation first to those who are in what we would call poverty. Well, it certainly says that uh, when we find ourselves in a difficult situation, I do have a chapter that deals with uh, the subject of poverty, that uh, there are some reasons why people are impoverished. Part of it is because of exploitation and fraud. Sometimes it's because of laziness, neglect, and gluttony. So I think if you are finding yourself in a situation where you don't have the resources that you believe God would have you to do, evaluate. Is somebody persecuting you? Are you going through some kind of tribulation? Or have you failed in your responsibilities to do those kinds? of things that you need to do. Proverbs talks about, go to the antho's sluggard and observe her ways and be wise. It may be that uh, you are being persecuted and we need to pray for your situation. It may be that you haven't taken responsibility for your poverty. But in either case, I think what we can learn here is that we should begin to apply these biblical principles we've talked about today in your life so that God can bless you, if not physically and financially, certainly to bless you spiritually. And Kirby, what exhortation would you give to those whom God has blessed? with wealth. Well, I would say there, we've already given you some warnings, and that is God wants to use the resources that are in your hands, your time, your talent, and most importantly, your treasure to make a difference. But at the same time, I think it is important for you to understand that you are wealthy compared to the biblical norm. Any person in the Old and New Testament who had more than one change of clothes and food for more than the day was considered wealthy. That means everyone listening to this broadcast is wealthy. And so as a result, if Jesus was warning us about the dangers of wealth. Even though we have this wealth and we own this wealth, we have to make sure that this wealth does not own us. As the title of his new book is Making the Most of Your Money in Tough Times. Thank you very much, Kirby, and we look forward to seeing you again on the show. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining us on Evidence and Answers with Pat Zuckerman. It's our hope to keep a quality program on the air and on the web that presents an intelligent response to the issues of our day and demonstrates the truth of the claims of Christ. If you agree, please support us with your prayers and gifts. One of the ways you can do that is by purchasing our resources available at evidenceandanswers.org. You can download past shows on everything from atheism to Zen Buddhism, read Pat's articles, and purchase Pat's new book with Dr. Norman Geisler, The Apologetics of Jesus, evidenceandanswers.org. That's evidenceandanswers.org. Go there today. I'm Kevin Harris. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time on Evidence and Answers.